Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Each week, we invite you to listen to messages of strength and hope given by our clergy on Shabbat or Jewish holidays. You can also listen to audio recordings of other programs and lectures given at Central by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. And raise me up to a world living, oh, safe from the storm, in the shelter of your shalom. Tonight, we have the honor to learn from a scholar and preacher whose ministry, like that of Dr. King, is dedicated to the sacred purpose of liberation. The Reverend Dr. Willie Duane Francois III is the senior pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church of Pleasantville, New Jersey, and the president of the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. He is also an assistant professor of liberation theology at New York Theological Seminary and the director of the Master of Professional Studies program at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Reverend Francois holds a doctorate in ministry from Emory University, a master's of divinity from Harvard Divinity School, and a bachelor's degree from Morehouse College. He's the author of many articles and several books, including the recently released Silencing White Noise, Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race. Reverend Francois and I first met as classmates in Divinity School. It has been a joy to reconnect with him in New York and to follow his career up close. You can hear more about his work at Sing Sing after services tonight when Reverend Francois will join our Central in Action leadership team and Saquon Prude from Emmaus House for a discussion of the Clean Slate New York campaign in Lee's Lobby. I have been longing to hear Reverend Francois preach ever since he lit up the stage as the class elected speaker at our Divinity School graduation. Reverend Francois, thank you so much for joining us tonight and honoring us with your presence. Shabbat Shalom. What a gift it is to gather here this evening to, yes, honor our great God of liberation, the God of the covenant, the God of great repair, but also to remember the life of a prophet whose life and death were down payments on so much of the rights we enjoy and the realization of American democracy it is his life in so many ways that has pushed this nation to live up to what it says on paper. And so to be here to celebrate uh, Dr. King with you all, who was a graduate of Morehouse College, uh, is, is a significant honor for me. Uh, to Rabbi Buckdahl for uh, your significant leadership here, and to my dear friend uh, Rabbi Healy for uh, arranging uh, this, this invitation. I don't know whose uh, arms had to be twisted in order for a yes to come, but I'm grateful to be here. On this King Shabbat, I want to draw our attention to one of our shared passages of Scripture 
Second King, First Kings, First Kings chapter 19. Reads, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me or more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled. Verse 11 reads, he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting rocks and splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I want to talk about this evening, no time for hiding. In the final year of Dr. King's life, he exhaustingly wrestled with intense depression, flagrant alienation, and tacit defeatism. In that last year of his life, he was not celebrated the way we celebrate him today. He was known as one of the worst people in America. In that last year of his life where he's wrestling with depression and alienation and defeatism, he pins words that seem so jarring to me today. On some positions, Dr. King says, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but must take it because conscience tells us it's right. Right is risky. Right can sometimes lead to defeatism when people and life seems to be an organized conspiracy against justice and love and tenderness. Life, when it is right, is risky. Cowardice inspires us to accept the grand cultural narratives about crime and to sew our mouths shut when black people are over-incarcerated. Expediency manipulates us to settle for a first step act that turns homes into prisons and, and uh, turns Pell Grants into opportunities for prison wardens to discriminate. Vanity shields us by allowing us to post Black Lives Matter and still support segregated schools. Post Black Lives Matter and only promote white people on jobs. To post Black Lives Matter and blame victims of police brutality for their own deaths. 
Cowardice shoves our heads in the sand when swastikas are placed on billboards in Pennsylvania on Wednesday. Expediency contorts the First Amendment when celebrities endorse Holocaust-denying rubbish. Vanity compels us to only think about anti-Semitism when a synagogue is attacked by a white supremacists, but to say nothing when anti-Semitic graffiti is found in high schools in Ridgewood, New Jersey last week, or when a menorah is vandalized in December of last year, or when Rutgers University Jewish fraternity is egged on Rosh Hashanah in September, but conscience knows that hate is wrong. Conscience understands that anti-racism is right. With the mounting intersecting crises that are all around us, there's no time for hiding in safe and the politic and the popular. There's too much on the line, including human life, for us to hide in those things that make us believe we are safe. For it is true that our silence betrays us. Our hiding is always telling on us. There's no time for hiding. But in our text today, we find a burnt-out Elijah in a prophet of misery without comfort. We find this prophet whose life has been an example of the miraculous happening in the mundane. The prophet's life examples how being faithful to the call of justice can produce fatigue and reclusiveness and self-pity when we misrecognize that the odds are really hidden in the favor of those who are committed to love tenderness, solidarity, ethics, and human flourishing. The text peers into the life of a miracle worker as he falls asleep choking in the firm grip of fierce hopelessness and finds himself hiding in the cave with splintering depression that even God or the divine does not understand why and how Elijah made his way there. What caves are we cowering in? What caves have we allowed to become the substitutes for actually doing something and engaging in the work? What caves have we allowed to be places of celebrations of prophets instead of us being prophets ourselves? This is not a time for hiding. What caves have we created here in the city? What caves bear our name and insulate us from the pain that is waiting for us to do something daring and courageous and loving? What caves have your name on it? Caves of comfort, caves of affluent, caves of ignorance, caves of corporatism, caves of partisanship. There are so many God-fearing, loving people of conscience who have made lives in caves when there are cities that are waiting for us to do something courageous, tenacious, and dynamic. We find this prophet in the cave because maybe there's something off about his memory, in order for us to take full use of this moment in which we live, we need calculated re-memory. The Elijah we find in chapter 19 has, is the faintest echo of his former self. Though he defeated this, this notion of Baal and the 450 Baalist prophets, uh, those, those prophets or oh, those chaplains of the empire, we find him nihilistically and cowardly cowering in a cave. 
This withdrawal episode comes not long after ending a national drought and proving that, that, that his God is able to rout the gods of government after the monumental victory over Baal and the prophets on the payroll of the empire. The threat of this Baal-worshipping ruler puts him to flight. We find him hiding in the cave because this fleeting glimpse of adversity creates a fatal distance between Elijah's soul and role, the highest self and his profession. What strikes me is that the prophet finds himself sequestered in the cave because Jezebel, this monarch, made an oath in the name of a god that Yahweh had already defeated. I'm grateful that, that God is bigger than the gods of government. I, I'm grateful that God is bigger than the God of whiteness and the God of patriarchy and the God of materialism and the God of militarism and the God of segregation and the God of broken health care and the God of police brutality and the God of homophobia. I'm grateful that we serve and are created in the image of a God that is bigger than government. This scene where we find Elijah hiding in a cave, it is because he is running from opposition that sets and, and declares an oath in the name of a God that's already been defeated. That is the promise, that is the gift of our memory that every day we get to wake up and remind ourselves that we've already defeated so many of the things that are weighing us down. Picture the scene where we find Elijah after believing he's already defeated the monarch and defeated the God of the monarch, the God of the government, and then what he thought he defeated resurfaced. That's where we are in this country now. We know the weight of watching opposition resurface after we work so hard to defeat it. No matter how hard we fight, structural racism continues to surface. Gender wealth gap persists. Homophobia stiffens. School segregation reincarnates. This is why Abram Kendi says that even though we have racial progress, there's also racist progress. For some reason, those things which we thought we defeated in the 60s or we thought we defeated with the 14th, 15th Amendment, those things have a way of resurfacing. The resurfacing of institutional evil and structural sins should not put us to flight. Resurgent crises, they rob us of our capacity to relive our history of victories because we are stung still by the hypothetical failures. But we must remind ourselves that what we are facing today, we have defeated it before. This is not a time for hiding because we have victory in our bones and in our blood and we are able to defeat what is after us again. We have achieved victory once and therefore we need to believe that we can reach into the treasury of our triumphs and do battle one more time through loving resistance to that which wants to destroy what it is truly meaning to be human. 
We've seen and beaten laws that abridge the rights of women before. We've seen and beaten politicians who appeal to our worst insecurities before. We've seen and beaten MAGA-ish factions before. We have seen and beaten things that are alarming us today. And we must have that hermeneutic of memory that reminds us if the God of grace and the God of glory and the God of the covenant can beat, can use us to win before, surely that God can use us to win again. As people of God, we were really born to rebel. Rebels do not spend time cowering in caves. We were born to rebel. Maybe that is why the great philosopher says, I rebel, therefore I exist. Every day is an occasion to remember that we were born to rebel. We were, Moses rebelled against Egypt and created an exodus. Caleb rebelled against the cowardly and poured steel in the spines of the formerly enslaved. Deborah rebelled against Sisera and liberated Israel, we were born to rebel. David rebelled against Goliath and brought dignity to his nation. The Hebrew men rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and survived the furnace because we were born to rebel. Harriet Tubman rebelled against slavery and conducted an underground railroad. Ida B. Wells rebelled against lynching and launched the first Say Your Name movement. We were born to rebel. Fannie Lou Hamer rebelled against the DNC and opened the ballot box in the South. Stacey Abrams rebelled against Neo Jim Crow voter suppression and delivered a black man and a Jewish man to the Senate from the South because we were born to rebel. Memory is a constant, memory is a constant opportunity to remember that we were born to rebel. That's why we must, in those most grueling moments, uh, we must practice what, what, what Toni Morrison calls rememory. We, we, we must remember those things we forgot we knew. We must remember that justice really does lean in the direction of us. We must really remember that we were all created equally, even though we do not have equal opportunity. We must remind ourselves that we were born to rebel against those things that rebel against our dignity, our safety, our flourishing, our freedom, and our democracy. We must remember ourselves forward. Not only must we, must we have a calculated rememory, but we also need courageous recalibration. I love this because that prophet cowering in a cave when there was a city that needed his courage, that needed his memory, that needed his power. He is nowhere to be found but in a cave. I love this. Because now is a time where we are reminded that we don't just need prophets, but we need prophetic communities. We don't just need people who can become our saviors and our political messiahs. We need all of us. We are all we have. So therefore, we must engage our lives and our gifts as if God can use them to transform this nation. 
That is what Dr. King was about. That is what the Hebrew prophets were about. But we must remind ourselves that we are all prophetic because we all have the gift of imagination of futuring the present and believing that what we see today is not all there will ever be because the present does not have to be permanent when we use our imagination and our courage to move things forward. But we find this prophet cowering in a cave. You all heard the story. You know the story. Is that he's hearing he's in a cave. He's, he's afraid. He, he has no idea what he is going to do. He's despondent. He feels as if he's alienated and all by himself. Not too terribly different from how Dr. King felt that last year of life after he called out the war and all of his lieutenants abandoned him. I imagine that Elijah and Martin felt this same sense of despondency. But right there in the cave, we are told that he hears the sound of sheer silence and he comes out of the cave. God is not in the wind. The Lord is not in the earthquake. The Lord is not in the fire, but he hears the silence and he comes out of the cave. But when he comes out of the cave, he, he rehearses the same self-pitying narrative that he had before he heard the still small voice, before he heard the sheer silence. He says, I'm all by myself. They've all abandoned you. They've torn down your altars. There's no one here to help me. I'm all alone and I don't know what to do. He hears the silence and he comes out of the cave. One translation says that as God passes by, the wind starts blowing. As God is passing by, the earth starts shaking. As God is passing by, the fire starts raging. It never says that God is in the silence. It just says he hears the silence and then he comes out of the cave. It's interesting to me that the wind blows when God moves. The earth quakes when God moves. The fire can't help but rage when God moves. But when God moves, the prophet is still hiding. Oh, how dangerous of a life it is to lead that when all of creation can respond to the move of God with courage, but prophetic people go to hiding when God needs us out of the cave, witnessing and participating in the manifestation of God's movement. The sheer silence is what draws him out of his cave. He misses the sight of breaking rocks and earth quaking and fire raging because he's hiding in the cave as God. God is moving, and that is really what we need to expect and embrace in this moment, that even when trouble and struggle is around us, we must be courageous enough to come out of our caves, not when things are silent, but come out of our caves while the wind is still blowing, while the earth is still quaking, while the fire is still raging. We need prophetic people who learn how to find God in the fire, who learn how to 
find God in the earthquaking, who learn how to find God in the storms. That is the only way we will make this country be true to what it says it is on paper when we don't wait for the silence, but we come out of our caves when things are unstable. We come out of our caves when things do not make sense. We come out of our caves when everything seems to be falling apart because if God is God and God will always be God, we can find God in the struggle. That's what we did, or that's what they did in the 60s. They, they learned how to find God in the struggle because fear and cautiousness can God-proof your life. Everything else gets in except God. But I refuse to miss the glory of God in the middle of the struggle against apartheid in healthcare, the struggle against segregation in schools, the struggle against police unaccountability. I refuse to miss the move of God in the middle of struggle Struggles that have our names on them. Elijah, what are you doing here? Too many people of faith stay inside in our places of worship, in our houses, watching news or looking the other way to avoid what is happening right before us. But humanity cannot stomach us looking away again. Find God in the storms. Find God in the quaking. Find God in the fires. And you will surprise yourself by how you have energy to press through those things that should not allow you passage to the other side. That's why I love to celebrate the life of Dr. King. Because he reminds us that there is no time for hiding when democracy is on the line. There is no time for hiding when January 6th is an everyday possibility. There is no time for hiding when anti-Semitism is on the rise and anti-black violence is the order of the day. There is no time for hiding, but we find our strength by keeping the movement going. I close, but Dr. King recounts the story of one of the mothers of the Montgomery Improvement Association. When they were in the midst of that bus boycott, which lasted over a year, the black citizens of the town divested and disused the public transportation system there. You all remember it. A marvelous older lady, that a part of the movement that they affectionately called Sister Pollard. She was about 72 years old and was still working at that age. And during the, the boycott, she would walk every day from work to church, to the laundromat, back to the home to her grandchildren's house to her children's job everywhere she went sister Pollard would walk and during that boycott there was one day that she was stopped by one of the bus drivers a white bus driver as she's been walking all day working all day that white bus driver stopped that bus and said wouldn't you like a ride and she said no sir I don't need a ride then the driver moved on stopped thought about it and backed up and said well aren't your feet tired? I know you can use a ride. And she said, yes, my feet may be tired, but my soul is rested. And I think that ought to be all of our postures, that when upending mass incarceration tires our feet, our souls are still rested. When eradicating punitive school discipline tires our feet, our souls are still rested. When passing a federal jobs guarantee tires our feet, our souls 
souls are still rested. When brothers and sisters who come home from prison and need places to stay tire our feet, our souls are still rested. When redistributing wealth tires our feet, our souls are still rested. When protecting the right to marry tires our feet, our souls are still rested. When embracing migrants tire our feet, our souls are still rested. There is no time for hiding because the God of the covenant, the God of liberation, the God of reparation that will keep us and carry us in the midst of our tired feet, in the midst of our storms, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the quaking of the earth, because even when our feet are tired, our souls can be rested. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Hello, hello.